You can be seated. It is time for some children's church, and so give some high fives on your way out if you are in pre-K through the fifth grade, and uh, we will see you all in a little bit. And uh, for those of you hanging around in here, if you've got a Bible with you, uh, would you please open it up to Psalm 122? And if you don't have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to grab one of those black Bibles out of the pew rack in front of you. And here's your shortcut. You'll find Psalm 122 on page 543 in your Bible. So I want to encourage you to have your Bible open, take a few notes this morning. We're just going to take our time today. Someone else is paying for the air conditioning. We might as well make use of it. And so just get comfy. Be okay. Um, Tomorrow's supposed to be hot as well. If any time the temperature is blazing and you need a place to cool down, come to the church. Uh, office hours are 9 to 5 every day. Uh, free Wi-Fi, place to hang out, charge your stuff, enjoy some air conditioning, bring the kids. Seriously, tomorrow, if it's blazing at your place, you need a place to go, come on. Or today even. Um, we'll be glad to take care of you. Psalm 122 is where we're going to be this morning. If you could create the perfect church, what would it look like? If, if your assignment was uh, identify the top four characteristics of your perfect church, what would they be? There's any number of things you, you might want to consider as you are building your perfect church. You might want to think about worship style, uh, preaching style. You might want to think about the mission of the church. What are you going to be about? You might want to think about different ministries the church might offer or the church's values or decor or demeanor or theological distinctives or location or political persuasion or justice initiatives or coffee options or inflatables or pyrotechnics or live animals. You have a large catalog of things to think about and consider. And so what would those four main characteristics be of your perfect church? And if you were to write those down, pass them into a center aisle, we'll collect those and then we'll tally up all of these and we'll see which four characteristics uh, are identified most frequently. We could do that. We could identify here, here are the four characteristics that the majority of our people agree are the most important and we could say the people have spoken and this is the kind of church that we've decided we're going to be. Now, it's one thing for the people to speak. It's another thing for God to speak. And so if we were to ask God, God, what type of church do you want us to be? I think his reply might come in the form of Psalm 122. Psalm 122 describes the kind of church God desires for us to be, for all of his churches to be. It's the kind of church that makes people rejoice. People are glad to be in it. It's a place of peace. The last few weeks we've been studying this songbook within the songbook. We've been studying Psalms of Ascent. 
The reason they're called Psalms of Ascent, we believe, is because they're pilgrimage songs. These are the songs you would sing on your way to Jerusalem, the holy city, uh, on your way to observe holy days there. We started in Psalm 120, and there's, in these first three Psalms, there's a bit of a geographical progression. Psalm 120, you might remember, begins in the wilderness, where we're surrounded by those who are antagonistic to the faith. Psalm 121, last week, we can see the hills of the city, uh, and that's where our help is going to come from, because our helper is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We've gone from wilderness to the hills, and this morning we step into the city. This little progression has been taking place. Finally, in Psalm 122, we, we arrive in the place uh, of our destination, the place where we've wanted to be this whole time, in the holy city, in the house of God, with the people of God. And in our song today, the singer rejoices when he goes with others to the house of the Lord. And then what he's going to do is describe the characteristics of the house of the Lord that lead to his rejoicing. And so if we were to take your top four characteristics for the church and compare those with God's list, there might be some similarities there. But let me ask you this, whose list would you prefer to have, your list or God's list? And if we were to compile all of ours together and identify those top four, would you rather have our list or would you rather have God's list? And if you were to see this morning in Psalm 122 that God has some different priorities for the church than perhaps you do, are you willing to lay your priorities aside and say, God, I want to make the church that brings you joy and leads people to rejoice? Would you be willing to do that? That's going to be the challenge for us from Psalm 122 today. My purpose today is to unite us around God's desires for His church. And Psalm 122 shows us four traits that God desires for us. Follow along with me as I read Psalm 122. A song of ascents of David. I rejoiced with those who said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet were standing within your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city should be, solidly united, where the tribes, the Lord's tribes, go up to give thanks to the name of the Lord. This is an ordinance for Israel. There, thrones for judgment are placed, thrones of the house of David. Pray for the well-being of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls, security within your fortresses. Because of my brothers and friends, I will say, may peace be in you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will pursue your prosperity. So what does God want His church to look like? What kind of church results in people rejoicing? Psalm 122 gives us four traits that God desires for His church. The first of those four traits is this. It's a God-given unity. What does God want for us? He wants us to be unified. Unified around what He wants for us. Unity can be really ugly. People can be unified for all kinds of dumb causes and gross reasons. 
So unity itself is not the goal. It is a God-given unity that we're to strive after. And so the song opens with the community of believers rejoicing because they're going to the house of the Lord. Now, here's a, a quick little question you might ask. You might say, hey, reading this, this, this is about Jerusalem. It's about the city. You're saying it's about the church. How are you, how are you getting there? Well, here's how. Verses 1 and 2 use the house of the Lord and the city of Jerusalem in synonymous ways. Look with me at verse 1. Verse 1 says, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. That's the destination. That's where the singer wants to be, with God's people in God's place, the house of the Lord. Where's the house of the Lord located? It's located in the holy city. It's in Jerusalem. So everywhere the singer speaks of the city of Jerusalem in Psalm 122. It is not about a zip code. It is about the community of faith. It's about the covenant people joining together in the place where God uniquely dwells. And so that's why my approach to this psalm this morning is it's not about what makes Jerusalem, the city, beautiful. This is about what makes the people of God beautiful, the church beautiful. This is what God wants for his people who are gathered together. So in the first three verses of this song, unity is on display. And these three verses give us a description of what that unity looks like. In verse 1, worshipers are unified in their rejoicing, and they're also unified in their destination. Right? He said, I rejoiced with those who said to me, so there's the corporate rejoicing, let us go to the house of the Lord. There's the corporate destination. We're all going to the same place together. In verse 2, they're unified in their location. Our feet were standing within your gates, Jerusalem. So they've made it to the house of the Lord. So there's unity in their voices. They rejoice. There's unity in their destination. Let's go to the house of the Lord. There's unity in their location in Jerusalem, inside the city gates, at the house of the Lord. And then look at what verse 3 says. It says, Jerusalem built as a city should be solidly united. What does this refer to? Do you think this is a reference to Jerusalem's architecture, the, the infrastructure of the city, the signage and the city planning that went on to put roads in place and the houses here? and business? Is that what it's referring to? Is that the unity on display in verse 3? No, because the solid unity that's being praised is the unity of the worshipers. This, again, is not about the city itself. It's about God's people being in God's place. So the holy city is as it should be when God's people are gathered to Him. And do you know what makes this unity so remarkable? Look at verse 3 again. Jerusalem, built as a city should be, solidly united, where tribes, the Lord's tribes, go up to give thanks to the name of the Lord. This is an ordinance for Israel. So this unity is remarkable because it's a unity that's made up of different tribes. Now, this is where being an American is not to your advantage in understanding the weight of this unity in Psalm 122, because we don't live in a tribal structure. The best we have is sort of our, our provincial love for our individual towns, but that's far different from belonging to a tribe. In other parts of the world, 
tribe is your first loyalty, your first identity. Your, tri- your literal tribe is your family. And so your allegiance is to tribe over nation. Not that nation is unimportant, but as long as your tribe is in charge of the nation, that's how things should be. Tribal loyalty is fierce. And that was not untrue of the original 12 tribes of Israel and God's people here. It's incredible that these tribes have been brought together in a clear unity. And what's unique about this unity is that when the tribes, the original 12 tribes, join together in the house of the Lord, ownership changes. Identity changes. No longer are they identified as Reuben's tribe or Levi's tribe or Judah's tribe or Naphtali's tribe, but according to verse 4, these are the Lord's tribes. And do you know what the Lord's tribes do together? At the end of verse 4, there's this little parenthetical statement. It says this is an ordinance for Israel. When the Lord's tribes are together, they are together obeying the commands of the Lord. That's what brings them together. The Lord is, is, is the key identity for the people. His word is what dictates the actions of the people. So the tribes are diverse and different, but as people in covenant with the Lord, they're united together. And, and you might think to yourself, man, I want to experience that kind of unity. I need to get myself to Jerusalem so I can rejoice with others who are going there. But let the Apostle Paul save you some airfare. I want you to look at what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, a church made up of a very divided group of people. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, Paul said this. He said, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, meaning you're not different, you're not separate from each other, you're not divided from each other, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So Paul didn't tell them to go to the temple in Jerusalem so they could find unity. Rather, he told them that they are a holy temple in the Lord and they are being built together in Christ, just as a city should be. The church that God desires is a church marked by unity in Christ from people of every tribe and language and people and nation. If you will look around this room here, we are a diversity of people. We are different ethnicities and nationalities and economic brackets. We are different ages and different stations in life. We are single and married. We are with children and without children. We are so many different towns on the South Shore. Some people like their lobster rolls cold. Some people like them hot. Some people like black licorice and seltzer. Everyone else feels sorry for them. We are different people. There are a thousand ways we are different, so many reasons to be divided, and yet, because of Jesus Christ, we are one family by faith. I love that. I I experienced this in a really fresh and powerful way in uh, a recent encounter. So last month, my family and I 
if you've been around this summer, my family and I went to Uganda for a long visit last month. And if you're new here, you may not know, two of my daughters are from Uganda. And so we went to visit family and friends, and it was a really special visit. Uh, one day, I, uh, the family was sort of scattered in this town we were in. I was back at our hotel sitting in the lobby, and I struck up a conversation with a young Ugandan man uh, who was there in the lobby. We had uh, had some greetings the day before, and so we just picked up the conversation again and asked him, uh, who he was, where he was from, what he was doing. Uh, he had just moved to the area from the capital city. That's why he's in this hotel while he looks for a permanent place to stay. And he told me about the work he was doing. Really impressive work uh, for people who are hurting, struggling. Um, it, it was a, a cause that was really beautiful and really special. We had a great conversation. Uh, his name uh, is Wilson. And so we, we talked a bit about where he was from, his work, and all those things. And then Wilson said this. He goes, not only do I do this work, but I'm also a pastor. I said, no way. I'm a pastor. And his eyes bugged out of his head. He said, wait right here. He took off running, went to his room. A minute or so later, he came back. He had a large envelope with him. And he took two pieces of paper out of that envelope. One of them was his... A certificate of completion for the Bible school he had just completed his studies at, and the other was his certificate of ordination from his church that had commissioned him into the ministry. For the next two hours, we sat and shared our testimonies, and we talked about what we love about following Jesus and what we love about the church, and, and, uh, and a, a little more experienced pastor was able to give a young pastor some advice as we talked about some different things. It was incredible. And uh, at the end of that conversation, I, I said, let me pray for you. And so I, I prayed for his ministry and his new job, and he's got to find a place to stay and all of that. And then when we were done, we stood up, and he said, uh, can I give you a hug? <laughs> I said, buddy, I love hugs. Let's do this. So we hugged it up, and he said, uh, hey, I want to give you something. And so he took this bracelet off of his wrist, and he gave it to me. I said, I want to give you something. I, uh, I a hobby I have is I make ink pens. And so I had a pen that I had made especially for me. I was like, here, this is for you. He's like, oh, thanks. And then he said, can we take a selfie together? But my phone's cracked. We'll have to use your phone. I was like, yeah, bring it in. So here's a picture of me and Wilson on that day. And since... Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> And we've been in communication uh, each week since, since we got back home. He just got engaged. Things are going well. God's using him in a really special way. Uh, we had a lot to talk about when we were just acquaintances. Just, hey, work, family, those types. And, and that was a cordial conversation. But, but what unites hearts together is this common experience of faith in Jesus Christ. We once were dead in our sin, but we're now alive in Him. And that means no matter the age difference, the nationality difference, the station in life difference, any difference that anyone else could bring to bear, we are one family together. He's our brother. One day you'll be kicking around in heaven and you'll meet some guy and he'll say, my name's Wilson. You'll say, we talked about you in church that one day. And he'll say, can I give you a hug? And you'll say, oh, I've heard about your hugs. But you don't have to travel to Uganda to experience that. You have that same opportunity every Sunday when you walk in the doors of this place. We pilgrimage here 
every Sunday. Do you realize that? I want to rejoice with those who said, let's go to the house of the Lord. People from every walk of life, everything different about us, but all of that transcended by our common experience of the grace and love of Jesus Christ. If, if we can't have that mindset, this place will always feel stiff and plastic. But if we recognize we, we are adopted children of our Heavenly Father, one family being built into a holy temple through Jesus Christ, then we become the church God desires, a church with a God-given unity in which we rejoice together. What does God desire for His church? That we would be a church with God-given unity. Second thing God desires for His church is that we would be a place where the Messiah reigns. We're going to be a place where the Messiah reigns. Look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5 says, There thrones for judgment are placed, thrones of the house of David. What's the there? What, what location is the there pointing to? You could say Jerusalem. That would be, you get partial credit for that. But remember in the context of this song, it's not just Jerusalem. It's the house of the Lord. There, the house of the Lord, where God's people are gathered in God's place, in God's name, that's where the thrones for judgment are placed, thrones of the house of David. What does that mean? This is odd language. So we've got to do a little backtrack to the Old Testament to make sense of this language. What does it mean that there are thrones of the house of David in the house of the Lord? Uh, once upon a time, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord gave a promise to King David. And here's what God promised to King David. He said, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So who is the descendant of David whose forever throne is established by God? Well, you and I on this side of Easter, we know that this is Jesus. And so this line from verse 5 has a messianic force to it. God's promised Messiah sits on an eternal throne from which he dispenses judgment. Did judgment make your top four when you were putting that list together? I want a church where the Messiah sits in judgment. It's kind of odd to think about it. Let's go to church and be judged. Yay! But that's not precisely what, what this is getting at. And also it, it shows a bit of how we misunderstand the compassion and mercy and glory of Christ in judgment on his throne. To speak of the Messiah sitting on his throne means that all things are ordered as they should be. Someone's got to sit on that throne. The church gets ugly when the pastor sits on the throne or the elders or the people. We're not commissioned to sit in judgment over others. There's one who that throne is for, and that is Jesus Christ. And when Christ sits on the throne, 
All of our relationships are ordered as they should be, and all things operate as He desires, and He is compassionate and merciful and kind and gracious and good. He is powerful. He is everything that we desire and want, and so when He sits on the throne in judgment over His people, over His creation, this is a good and beautiful, wonderful thing. When Jesus sits on the throne, we, we want Him there because we know His character and we know His heart. And, and, and we know that if He laid His life down for us while we were, were still sinners, won't He also give us now every good and glorious thing? So we don't have to fear that judgment. Judgment's been rendered already. He took the judgment that our sin requires by His death on the cross. And for those who are His by faith... When Christ sits on the throne, we rejoice. This is good news for us that there is a throne of the house of David seated uh, over God's people. There's another way we might think about Christ sitting in judgment, though. If, if we speak of Jesus sitting on the throne, we can also speak of His justice. You see, the, the house of the Lord is a safe place for God's people who live in a hostile world. So to be in the place where the Messiah reigns means protection for believers, but conversely it also means justice dispensed when the enemies of God and His people face their final eternal judgment. Divine justice will roll against every abuser, against those who hurt the innocent, against those who commit violence. Justice will roll against every dictator who destroys their people, every tyrant who delights in making war. Some perpetrators may escape earthly justice, but no one escapes God's justice. The thrones in the house of David will prevail against every evil committed by mankind. Cody, that was kind of a, that's a heavy turn, but this week the news prepared us for thinking about this psalm in this way. When the news broke of Al-Qaeda leader uh, Ayman al-Zawahi uh, being found and taken out in Afghanistan, for many people there was a sigh of relief. Justice has been served. One of the masterminds of the 9-11 attacks who's been on the run and in hiding for these decades, finally, justice came from the sky in one form. And it's not that we're glad when people are destroyed, but there's a sense in which we need justice, we desire that, and the Lord delivers His perfect justice in His perfect timing, and God's people can be glad in that. So the church is a place where we sit under the wonderful rule of the Messiah and where we rejoice under His justice. What does God's church look like? We have a God-given unity. The Messiah reigns. The third characteristic, it's a place where peace is prayed. It's the place where peace is prayed. We pray and 
What are we praying for? We're praying for peace. So verse 6 is a very well-known verse. In my estimation, one of the more misused verses in the Bible. Verse 6 says, pray for the well-being of Jerusalem. Your translation might say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so uh, this verse is often used to rally people to support Jewish causes. However, this is not the way this verse should be used. We have to remember that in this psalm, Jerusalem is synonymous with the house of the Lord. This is a reference to the church, a reference to the covenant community. The prayer for the peace of Jerusalem is not a geopolitical prayer about safety from rocket attacks or terrorism. In light of the context of Psalm 122, the prayer in verse 6 is a prayer for peace in the church. Should we pray for Jerusalem? Absolutely. And you should pray for Detroit. And you should pray for Atlanta, and you should pray for Boston, and you should pray for Hingham. Yeah, we should, we should pray for these cities and these places and these people. But verse 6 calls us to pray for peace, the peace of God in the church among the people of God. So, uh, what are we to pray for the church? Uh, verse 6 doesn't leave us asking. We're to pray for peace. Uh, if you've been in the church for a while, you're familiar with the Bible, you know that this, the word for this is shalom. And you might know that shalom is more than just the absence of warfare, but rather shalom is this well-being, a wholeness, a deep satisfaction with life. So when we pray for shalom, we're asking God to give what only He can give. God, this peace that we want is not something man-made or manufactured. It's a peace that comes only from you. We are the ones who receive it and enjoy it. Isn't it interesting that verse 6 tells us to pray for shalom among God's people? And then it offers this blessing. It says, may those who love you be secure. Your Bible might say prosper instead of secure. So in verse 6 we have a command pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and in this blessing, may those who love you be secure. The command is to pray, and the blessing is for those who love. It's interesting to me how prayer and love are synonymous here. How can you tell if you love your church? One piece of evidence will be your prayers for the people you worship with. And also how incredible that those who love God's people are blessed by God's prosperity. So your brothers and sisters in this church need you to pray for them. They need you to love them enough to ask God to grant them well-being, wholeness, a deep abiding satisfaction with life. And if you're going to pray that way for another person, it's probably best to pray some specifics You could just pray, God, give your peace to our church. That's an okay prayer. But if you know a name and a need, I think the specific prayer is the better prayer. God, my friend so-and-so needs this. Grant them your peace. The only way to know those specifics is to ask and also to answer when you are asked. Uh, One Sunday last year, I greeted one of our church members here at the doors of the sanctuary, and uh, he pulled me close, and he said, listen, lately I've been been praying for you, and uh, I've just had this sense that there's something really heavy, and so I've been spending some extra time thinking about you in prayer. What am I praying for exactly? And uh, 
that's a great opportunity to be like, oh, things are great. <laughs> things are good. God bless you. Take off. But no. Uh, I said, yeah, uh, you've heard from the Lord correctly. I can't tell you what's going on because it's a confidential matter. But would you keep praying, please? And you're praying right. And so he did. He prayed for me right there. And then a little bit later, he checked in on me again. That's what it looks like to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. To go to your brother and sister and say, I'm praying for you. What am I praying for? We can cut past the pleasantries. How are you? How's your week? Sure is hot. Do, 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 all that. Cut past the pleasantries. I'm praying for you. What am I praying for? And there we become the church that God desires us to be. He wants us to be a church united. He wants to be a church under the Messiah's rule, a church where we pray peace. Finally, God wants us to be a church where peace is pursued. Verses 8 and 9 describe the pursuit of peace, the practice of peace. We're not just going to pray for it, though prayer is essential and vital. Having prayed for it, we will then act for it. So verses 8 and 9 are two parallel verses. They follow similar patterns. They give motivation followed by action. Here's why I'm going to do, and here's what I'm going to do. So in verse 8, the community of faith is a motivation for action. Look at it with me. Because of my brothers and friends, because of my covenant family, the people that I walked into the gates of the holy city with, because of them, I will say, may peace be in you. Your translation may just say, peace be with you. So I'm going to turn to those that I came to God's place with, those that I'm rejoicing with, those I'm praying for, and they will hear from my mouth the blessings of the Lord. God, give them peace, and then I will give them the Lord's peace. There's this popular old proverb, pray with your feet moving. There's times just to pray on your face, but there are times to pray with your feet moving. God, give them peace. I will give you peace. We act on it. Verse 9 follows a similar pattern of motivation followed by action. Look at verse 9. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will pursue your prosperity. So I take this language when he says, may peace be in you, I take that to be pointing to the believing community. Not just the the house of the Lord, but if there's going to be peace in the house of the Lord, it's going to be among the people. And then similarly, verse 9, I will pursue your prosperity. If there's prosperity in the house of the Lord, it's a prosperity among the people of God. So this is where I see us, we pray for this peace and then we act on it. I'm going to speak it and I'm going to pursue your prosperity. We've got the motivation followed by the action. And this language in verses 8 and 9, it reminds me of Paul's opening words to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, do you remember these words from Paul? He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. We are comforted to be comforters. 
We've stepped into the house of the Lord. We've received His mercy and grace. We've been comforted. And so here in Psalm 122, I'm going to be a comforter. May peace be in you. I will pursue your prosperity. In verse 6, we pray for peace. In verse 8, we speak peace. In verse 9, we act for peace. We work for the peace of others because of the peace God has given to us. Now, it happens so often in church life that, that there are divisions among people because we are humans and we are different and we have different opinions and, and I can be annoying and you get tired of that and those things happen. But it is not right for the people of God to live with fractured relationships with each other. Here's my caveat, very important caveat. There are some situations, some hurts that are so deep, some relationships so broken that they will only be repaired when we stand in the presence of Jesus. In fact, it may only be appropriate that they would be repaired when we stand in the presence of Jesus. That exclusion aside, by and large, the differences and disagreements and challenges we have with each other are opportunities for us to put into practice this song that we would say to each other, may peace be with you. I'm going to pursue your prosperity. It's not an acceptable part of Christian living that, that we would have broken relationships among each other, especially among our brothers and sisters in the faith, because we, we gather in the name of the God to whom we are reconciled, the God who is holy, 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 and has saved sinners, sinners, sinners like us. And so we, we stand and exalt His name and worship and gather for His name to be made great, while at the same time having beef with the person we're worshiping in the same room with. It can't be that way for people who are reconciled to God. So this is where Psalm 122, it really makes us uncomfortable because we can't just sing a nice little song and act like everything's okay. We have to enter into the muck of broken relationships and apologize and get over ourselves and make things right in the name of Jesus Christ. Is there a believer that you're avoiding right now? Someone you're not speaking to. Someone you think is stuck up. Someone you accuse of being cliquish. Someone you're critical of. Someone who, they, all, all they do is wrong. Is there someone you used to be friends with but are no longer? If you're going to sing Psalm 122, you should probably be ready to pursue the prosperity of other people. We do that by practicing peace. So what four traits does God desire for His church? He wants us to live in unity, His unity. He wants us to live under the reign of the Messiah. He wants us to pray peace, and He wants us to pursue peace with each other. Is that a complete list? Is that, is that the sum total of all that God wants for the church? Absolutely not. But it's an essential list. These are key characteristics, not, not optional. We're not called to pick the ones that work for our agenda and leave the others aside. This is who God's people are at a bare minimum. When you were thinking of, of your perfect church that you could craft, did any of these characteristics make your list? It's possible. It's possible that maybe one or two are there. They're, they're present in some way. But I've got to ask you now, whose list is better, your list or God's. 
I know my list, and, and I'm going to set that aside. I'm going to say I'm going to go with God's list on this one. And as you consider these four traits, would you say that your desires for our church are in line with God's desires for our church? And if not, who needs to change? God, I want to talk to you about a few things. <laughs> Here's how I think it ought to be. Well, you can try that conversation, but I think the reason we have this song is so that we would see the people of God the way God sees us. We've had real challenges in the past few years when it comes to understanding the importance of God's people being together. We've had to ask some really hard theological questions as we've sorted through gathering and not gathering. Restrictions, no restrictions. And uh, oftentimes when we've had these conversations, there's always been a voice somewhere that would say this, well, you know, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And that's true-ish. Attending church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a barn makes you a cow. But going to church is what God's people do. It's not just a spot on the calendar. It is our regular, rhythmic, weekly pilgrimage to rejoice with those who come to the house of the Lord with us. So yeah, attending church doesn't make you a Christian, but attending church is what Christians do. In communist countries, churches have to gather in secret. If they only had the American church to say to them, you know, you don't have to do that. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You can just go to online church. Stay safe. Stay home. That might be the better way. If only they knew what we knew. Well, I, I, I think we should know what they know about how absolutely essential it is for our souls that we would gather with our brothers and sisters in the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible's command to gather is not meant to be a burden or a new legalism. It's for the good of our faith, for the good of our love, for the good of our joy. And so how can we treat that as optional? Why would we choose church only when it's most convenient to us? Our soul requires this rejoicing together in the house of the Lord. And you need to be pursuing another person's prosperity. And you need other people pursuing your prosperity. Praying for you. Encouraging you. Walking with you in your growth in the faith. We need each other more than we realize. So here's the two things I think we should do in light of Psalm 122. Two commands that come right from the song itself. The first is show up. The second is serve. What, what do we do in light of Psalm 122? We show up and we serve. First, we show up consistently. You know, we, we, don't, we don't treat these relationships as optional or as back burner material, but this is priority place and people for us. If you're a college student, you're about to head back for your fall semester, wherever you're going to school, listen to me, you need a local church to invest your life in in this window of time. Make it your priority that your first 
Sunday, your first opportunity back at your school, that you find a local church. And you may have to hit up a few before you find the one that's just right, but do not make that optional. You'll, you'll be the only one, perhaps. And your friends won't understand why it would be a priority to you when you could just sleep in or you could just watch your pastor from Hingham online because that's dynamite. But you know you've got to be with people. You've got to be there. And so listen, be a college student that, that goes to church every Sunday. Introduce yourself to your pastor and find out how you can serve the people in that place. They're going to shape you in profound ways over the next four years or whatever you've got left on your degree. Go to church. Show up. Family, show up consistently. If, if we're your church, we're incomplete without you. We need you here more than you realize. Show up and serve. Serve in ways that are formal, ways that are informal. Meet people each Sunday. Remember names. Give invites to brunch or coffee. Teach the Bible to our children. Serve our teenagers. Jump into a ministry of the church. Create a ministry of the church. Brothers and sisters, show up and serve. And when you do, you will see the true beauty of this place thanks to your contribution, your presence. Now, I can't be sure of this, but I wonder if maybe Paul had Psalm 122 in mind when he wrote to the Colossians. To that church in the city of Colossae, he wrote to a people who were uh, experiencing fractured relationships, all kinds of tension, and he told them the kind of church that God wants them to be. And Paul wrote the following, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, Therefore, God's chosen ones... Holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control your hearts Brothers and sisters, may peace be in you. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that your peace would reign among us. Lord, let that peace reign in our lives, those of us who know you, who Christ is our Savior. Let that peace be what we experience in our right relationship with you, and then out of the overflow of that relationship, let us practice it among each other. Let there be no mistaking our unity, our togetherness, so that those outside would, would look here and they would see among us not more divisions and more fighting, but they would see the peace of God reigning among us. Help us to put the needs of others before our own. Lord, help us to put our preferences behind and put the well-being of our brothers and sisters at the forefront. Lord, help us to work for the good of each other. And my prayer this morning also is for the friend in here that doesn't know you as their Savior, that that one would come to peace through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you 
for making the way for us through his death and resurrection. Lord, this morning, open their eyes. May your peace be in them. May they find it through faith in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.